This interview features President of Mauritius, Amina Garib Fakim, and journalist Stephanie Bussari, recorded live at TED Global 2017. So President Amina, thank you for joining us. And um, even as TED speakers go, you're something of an overachiever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You have a PhD in organic chemistry. You were vice chancellor of the University of Mauritius, a successful entrepreneur. You've won numerous awards for your work in science. And you're the first Muslim female head of state in Africa. And And of course, you're no stranger to the TED Global stage. You gave a talk in 2014. Um, Did you have any political ambitions at that time? How did you go from academic to president? Okay, thanks, Stephanie. First of all, I'd like to thank Ted for having given me this opportunity to be here today. And I would also like to thank the government of Tanzania and the president and uh, for the welcome. And also, I'd like to thank uh, the contribution of our council, Mr. Rizvi, who is here, has been very supportive for all our study, for our stay here. Now, to answer to your question, uh, did I have any ambitions in politics? Uh, the answer, the straight answer is no. I did not choose the world of politics. The world of politics chose me. So here I am. (laughs) So was there ever anything in your journey that ever made you think that one day you would become president of your country? Did you ever imagine that? Absolutely not. And I think uh, the journey started immediately after Ted, actually. And when I went back, a journalist called me and said, uh, you know, your name has been cited for the president of the republic. I said, ma'am, you must be mistaken because I have no ambition whatsoever. She said, no, no, it's very serious. So can you come and tell me this in the form of a, of a, of a, of a declaration? So I said, okay, you come. So, of course, as good journalists go, the next day I see my TED picture and with my name, Amina Garifakim, for president, very small interrogation mark. And uh, people don't see the interrogation mark, they just see my name, they see my picture. <clears throat> and that was a sounding board. And again, as, as you have just said, it was a very interesting scenario because it was a, a scenario where they wanted to have somebody who was credible, had this uh, political neutrality, and at the same time was from a minority because Islam is minority religion in Mauritius because in Mauritius we stratify people's uh, origins by virtue of uh, the religious belief. And I was a woman. So this made it all very interesting. So there we go, and this whole campaign started, and then people said, why not? Now, this is very important to note, Stephanie, because normally the president is elected after the election. And here we had a scenario where the name of the president was flagged before the the election process, during the campaign. So when people voted, they knew that at some point they would have this Muslim woman president. Does it feel significant to you as a woman to be the first female president of your country? Um, it's, uh, it's important for many reasons. Uh, I think, obviously, you just mentioned the, the, the terrible statistics of two female presidents in the whole of Africa. Uh, but uh, more importantly, I think uh, it's important, also coming from the background I come from, and uh, background, I mean not uh, ethnic, but uh, more academic and entrepreneurial, to be there, to be that role model for that little girl growing in my village to say, yes, it's possible. It's possible.
It's also important, Stephanie, while I talk about diversity. Diversity in the widest sense of the word. We've seen that whenever, whenever there was diversity, whenever there was openness, whenever there was dialogue, this was the time when societies have been most productive. When we talk about the Arab Golden Age, we cannot, think, we cannot not think of Ibn Sina, Al-Haytham, Averroes, Maimonides. This was the time when cultures, religions, they were talking to each other. They were at peace with each other, and this was the time when they were highly productive. So I would say, bring down these walls. Absolutely, absolutely. And <laughs> virtual or otherwise. Let's also talk about another kind of conflict area, which you straddle uh, quite interestingly, as a woman of faith and also a scientist. You know, faith and science seems to be at loggerheads. It wasn't always so, but I just, I'm interested to get your thoughts on how, they, how you reconcile both and how they coexist for you personally. They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, uh, you know, if you're a scientist, you tend to really look at the perfection of uh, the human body, the way it functions. If you look at nature as a whole, I'm still amazed at the perfection with which, of course, the entire ecosystem functions together. However, to the purist, to those who, have, uh, who are of faith, they will tell you, yes, there has been evolution. Even the Pope has agreed that uh, the evolution exists. But there's always the question as, what came first? What came before this? When we talk about all the various uh, strata of evolution, we'll always be asking the question, there must be something before. So I am of the opinion that, yes, there is this great spiritual force which is guiding the process. And uh, things like this don't happen by chance. Now, whether you call it religiosity, whether you call it, whether you call this great spirit by any name, Brahma, Allah, the Holy Trinity, you name it, but I still think that these two are not mutually exclusive. They can still coexist with each other. Um, so let's move to one of your passions, is science. Uh, you've made no secret of that. And you've always been passionate about science. You know, I read that when you were a very young girl, you went to a career guidance counsellor and told them you wanted to become a chemist. And they said, no, you know, it's, a, it's for boys. Boys do science. Uh, did that make you even more determined to, to study science and to succeed in that field? I mean, how, how did you respond to that? Well, to begin with, I must say, before I came to that careers guidance officer, I had great teachers who motivated. And this is something that I'd like to draw attention again to our education system. We have to do away with this rote learning. We have to ensure that we drive this curiosity in the child and they need to be curious. And if we want to move along the line for, for them to become great scientists, they need to become more and more curious into everything they do. So exactly, I went to see the careers guidance. He looked at me and says, girl, what, what do you want to do? I said, I want to study chemistry. Well, you should not be studying chemistry because this is for boys. And the next thing, when you come back, there'll be no job for you. So I went back home, and of course, I have a great cheerleader at home, who happens to be my father. He said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, what did he say? I said, this is what he said. And he said to me, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to do chemistry. So there I was. <laughs> and one thing I always say is that one must always follow your heart. Absolutely. And my heart was always in chemistry. I did what I was passionate about. And I thought at some point that I had developed this thinking that if you're passionate about what you do, you will not have to work a single day in your life until I realized 
it was Confucius who said that. <laughs> um, so do you feel a responsibility um, as someone in your position to encourage young girls, especially on this continent, uh, to, to follow, to study STEM subjects? You know, is that something that you actively work You know, over the past two days, Stephanie, we've been hearing a lot of conversation about the sustainable development goals. We've seen that, for example, Africa must be food secure, Africa must be energy secure, Africa must be water secure. If we want to get to that level of development, Agenda 2030 is not very far away. If we want to have success, we need to have an educated youth in Africa. And again, to be very cliché, you cannot achieve, you cannot win a football match if you're going to leave 52% of the team outside. And it's not possible. Yes. So we need highly educated, we need female intuition, and we need to get them there. And this is where a great deal of effort has to be done to actually motivate them from a very young age to tell that girl that she can do anything. And this, if the message comes from her father, if the message comes from her brother, it's even much more powerful. So we need to tell her that anything is possible and she can do it. So we need to build her self-confidence from a very early age. But more importantly, we also need to actually look at the books because there are too many stereotypes. Last year, I was very shocked when I went to a debate on Women's Day and they had a survey, and they were asking these girls, how many women inventors do we have? How many women scientists do we have? And you'd be shocked that hardly anyone knew that Ada Lovelace was there behind computer science, that Marie Curie still remains iconic with two Nobel Prizes. So there's a lot of homework to do to actually make, to, make, to remove all these gender biases at a very young, young age, instill that confidence in that girl to tell her that she can do as well, if not better, than her brother. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So let's move on to an, an area that I know that you've been very active in, which is the issue of biodiversity. You've been quite clear that this is a, an area that Africa must embrace. We have an abundance of rich herbal traditions and plants that could be developed into a, a big pharmaceutical industry. Can you tell us uh, a little bit how you've been using your expertise to harness uh, growth in this area? Thank you. Yesterday I was listening to one of the talks, and it was a talk about the need for Africa to turn into a knowledge economy. Africa has got very rich traditions. Sub-Saharan Africa, Southern Africa, has got over 5,000 medicinal plant species not harnessed. And in fact, in that TED talk I gave in 2014, I came out with one sentence, biodiversity underpins life on Earth. And if we don't look after this biodiversity, if we don't protect it, if we don't actually harness it in the right way, we are threatening our own livelihoods on this planet. And when we talk about the contribution from countries of the North to the Green Fund for the protection of our planet, It is not charity. It is to ensure our own collective livelihoods on this planet. So this is something that must be addressed. Now, again, when you talk about uh, the getting this biodiversity of Africa working for us, you'd be shocked to know that out of the, 80, out of the 1,100 blockbuster drugs that we have on, on, the, on the market, only 83 come from 
from African plants. Why this is so? Because we are responsible. Us Africans, we don't value our own traditional knowledge. We don't give it the same status as allopathic medicine. Look at what China has done. China has given the same status for traditional Chinese medicine as allopathic medicine as from 2016. Our governments, our people have not documented, have not taken this knowledge seriously. Now, if you want to get serious about Africa becoming a knowledge country, a knowledge country, and acknowledge a, a continent, this is something that we need to address very seriously. We need to start documenting. We need to start codifying this knowledge. And unfortunately, we are racing against time because tradition in Africa is that is the transmission has always been oral. So we need to get our act together and make it happen. So there's really a sense of urgency around this. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And have you done anything yourself in uh, respect to documenting some yes, of these? Right. I definitely did. Uh, when I started my career uh, in, in academia, one of the first things I did was I documented precisely these plants. And I tell you one thing, it was not perceived to be very serious because here I was, a synthetic organic chemistry going out there talking to these grandmothers, documenting their recipes. I mean, seriously, you can't be serious when you start bringing weeds in the lab and say, we're going to be working on these and we're going to get results. So it was really, again, a race against, uh, you know, against prejudice to try and you know, take people, you know, bring them to the table and say, look, this is very important. But I'm glad I did, because by that time you start developing a crocodile skin, especially when you're a woman in the lab doing different things. Uh, you know, you become suspect. So I documented it. I'm very happy I did. And now, almost 20 years since the documentation, it now constitutes prior art, and it's now very well documented at WIPO, and it is now uh, the information on which, subsequently, my company actually started working on as well. So I, I watched you in the makeup room um, uh, taking selfies with a makeup artist and, uh, you know, just being very, generally very accessible. And it strikes me that you're not the kind of typical big man African leader. You, you seem Ma'am, very... you just demoted me. You called me a man. <laughs> I mean, the style. <laughs> Your style is very, seems to be very accessible and quite unassuming. Um, and so is this, is this, I mean, uh, people tend to ask, you know, women leaders if their gender has a bearing on, on, on the way they, they rule or the, the way they lead. I mean, it's, does, does, that, it's, does that apply to you? You know, I've never taken myself seriously. Okay. I still <laughs> don't. <good. laughs> I still don't. Yeah. And I don't think that you should take yourself seriously. You need to have trust in what you can do, have confidence in yourself, and give yourself a set of goals and just work towards them. So the goal I've given myself is that, okay, I have, I'm leading my third life because I have been academic, I've been an entrepreneur, now I'm here, I'm hoping to have a fourth life. So put these to work for the continent. And this is why I have chosen to give my voice to so many initiatives that would help the youth of Africa become tech-savvy, become science-savvy. Because as I said earlier on, up until they get to grips with science, with whatever is, is, you know, around media, technology, you name it, all calls for a good grounding in science, technology, and innovation. I think we'll be here 10 years, 20 years down the line, having the same conversation. Okay. Let's talk quickly about the challenges of leadership and governance. Uh, it's hard to ignore that there's corruption, uh, 
in, in this continent with some of our leaders. How have you confronted that in your role? And uh, you know, what, what experiences can you share with us uh, around this issue? We've had corruption. I mean, corruption doesn't exist only in Africa. Where there is corruptee, there's a corruptor, right? There's always a, you know, it's always a two-way process. Uh, we have focused uh, in my country. We are working very hard towards, uh, towards you know, doing something about, about the corrupt practice. But you know, there have been also great people in Africa. Why do we always focus on the negative? Why don't we talk about what you bring on board, for example, the great quotes of Nelson Mandela that had said we, his legacy is still very much alive. We have people in even Tanzania. We've had Julius Nyerere. We have Nkrumah. We have Kenyatta. We have all these people who have been champions of Africa. I think we need to take pages of their book and see. In fact, Julius Nyerere himself had been a great advocate for science when he said that science will make deserts bloom. So these are some of the founding fathers of this continent. We need to take pages from them and okay. move ahead. Thank you very much, President Thank you so much. For more TED Talks, go to TED.com. 